come to a portion of Scripture in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 4 through 17, that has got a, uh, a passage that I think has been misconstrued uh, by some, and we'll talk about that as we go through it, and yet it is a very good, important, and I think a very convicting passage of Scripture. Uh, last week, we uh, dealt with the uh, carnal Christian theory, and that portion of Scripture that I think has been uh, misapplied by often. Uh, quite often, we saw that a fleshly or a carnal Christian are not those who have accepted Jesus as Savior, but not Lord. I have accepted it, quote, I don't think it's an unbiblical word if it's properly understood. I know there are those who kind of shy away from it because it's so abusive. So it's just like it makes it's that idea that we have to accept Jesus and it, 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 when we need to be talking about repentance faith of what it, what it really means to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. But we'll, we'll use it in this context. A carnal Christian is not one who has accepted Jesus as Savior, but not Lord. That is a false professor. You don't accept part of Christ. You don't receive the part that you like. He's Lord, whether you accept it or not. It says that if you don't accept it, you're going to hell. Right? <clears throat> so that's a false understanding of what does Paul is talking about a fleshly Christian. We saw that a fleshly Christian here in First Corinthians 3 are immature, baby infant Christians, if you will, in that they tend to be self-centered and not Christ and other-centered, but like an infant, you assume growth. You assume that you, you're going to move forward. God has not saved you to remain in that kind of self-centered world, right? Um, then we saw that the milk then, that he has to feed the uh, fleshly Christians, the different Christians with, are the basics of the gospel, which are good and necessary, but solid food then is moving beyond just the, the facts of the, of the gospel and understanding what the gospel means, what it's doing in you. And all the doctrines of scripture are to work in us lives that are being conformed to Christ to make us a good servant of the Lord and the church. So a Christian uh, needs to always be centered around the gospel, but also what the gospel is to be in us, fruit. It's not just enough to say, well, I believe that Christ died for my sins, but I, that's all I really care about. That, I think, would probably move you into a professing Christian, but not an actual well, as we come to our text today, Paul is going to move on. And remember, he's speaking to these, to the church as a whole, but to these fleshly Christians in particular, the ones who are causing some of the division. Our tendency is to put man itself on the throne instead of the Lord. And when we do this, our lives will start to fall apart. There's no other way. Uh, it, it, I mean, we might be making money, having a good time, but spiritually our lives are not going to be what they should be. And it begins with the way we think or talk to ourselves uh, and spreads to our emotions and our wills and our actions, spreads to our family, to the church. How we understand who we are, what the Bible says about that, who God is and what purpose of salvation is, will affect your life. And if it doesn't, again, either you're not saved or you're not thinking through the Bible. You're not meditating on it. You're not rolling the Bible is to help us understand things. The great burden of my ministry is to sustain us through the preaching of Christ to our, that it, that it would go to our, not just our heads, but our hearts. That is to get us to quit thinking like a lost person. So we'll stop acting like a lost person, which I think again is what the Corinthians are doing when he says, are you not merely acting like a human being? You're just acting like a natural man out there, a lost person out there, and something is drastically wrong. We ought to learn to live in the grace and love and sovereignty of God so that whatever problems we face, we still have the answers and the strength that we need to meet those things in a godly fashion. Another way to say that is that if I'm going to address finances, the marriage, depression, training our children, and all the other things that we can and should in one way in one way or another address from the pulpit, 
it's going to begin with a, an astounding look at the grace of God in Jesus Christ. It's not enough for me just to stand up here and tell you how to have a good marriage. You'll have a good marriage if you love Christ with all of your heart, mind, body, and soul. To try to tackle our problems separately from the cross will never be more than outward reformation. Outward reformation is not God-honoring. Now let me repeat that. The Bible, God's goal and statement is not that we just merely learn to behave ourselves. God is not honored if all we do is outward reformation. It's, we are to have a transformed heart. God, every saint has a transformed heart, which means then that it will eventually trans, start transforming our life. So I want to be moral. I want to be godly, I want it to affect my outward man, but if it doesn't do it from a heart, arise from a heart that loves the Lord with all my heart, mind, body, and soul, it is just outward transformation. And any lost person can do that. So in verses five, 4 and 5, we have an example here. He says, why are there divisions and jealousies and strife in the church? Because we put ourselves where God belongs, and we forgot where he found us, talked about in Sunday school, and we've made it about myself, which is again what these carnal, these fleshly Christians. Notice the things that he brings out here in verse 5. He says, what then is Apollos? These people that they have kind of put in God's place, they've allowed to divisions in the church. He says, what is Apollos? What Paul? They are merely servants through whom you believe as the Lord assigned to each. I, Paul, planted, he started the church, he put the gospel, he threw out the gospel seed, as Jesus said of the miracle, and then Apollos comes along, and he waters the, the growing plants, the church is seen here as a farm, a field. Apollos is just another servant, another farmhand, but it's all God. That the earth is the Lord's, the church is Lord's. He's the one who's given us life. You know, when a seed is planted and starts to grow, it's nothing in himself that produces life. He's completely dependent upon the nutrients of the soil, on the rain that comes from heaven. He's bearing fruit because of powers beyond him, right? The earth is the Lord's. God made us what we are. And what he's saying here is not, I haven't, Paul hasn't made you that, Paul hasn't made you that, it's the Lord. You're a servant of the Lord, not not of this man or that man, and certainly not of yourself. God is the object of our faith. God made us who we are. God alone gives growth, life growth, as he goes on to say in verse 6, uh, I planted, but, but God gave the growth. And then in verse 7, Nothing compared to God. He's the one who gives life, and our lives are to be centered on Him. So neither He who plants nor He who waters is anything. He's not saying that Paul, the pastor, the elders are just nothing, aren't important. But He's saying, look, they're just part of the process. They're the farmhand. They're there to serve you, to help you. But what did He say here? Um, in verse 8. Uh, verse okay, so neither he in verse 7 who plants or he who waters anything but only God who gives the growth in other words God is the reason for all this he who plants and he who waters are one they're, they're servants and each will receive his wage according to his labor and he's going to go on to uh, that's what the bulk of this message will be about what it means to serve in the Lord's uh, kingdom uh, it, it, this, we're going to see in a moment, it's not just talking to the preachers or to the elders, it's talking about all of us, how, how we're working in the church. And it says, uh, how you work will depend on the way that you receive. There's benefits how we serve the Lord. Verse 9, for we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. You can use three different illustrations here of the church. First two we'll look at today are the field and the building, and the next week we'll look at the temple. All these illustrate what it is to be in the church, 
in the kingdom of God. But he's, but he's saying, look, we're all in this thing together. And uh, division just completely undo what we're supposed to be doing. That's why he said last week, when he says, are you not being merely human? You're thinking as one who knows Christ, one who has not been touched by the grace of God. You're living as one who's unthankful, which is just like the world. So, being a fleshly person, one who doesn't, isn't being transformed in our minds by the power of the Word of God, is living like a lost person. That's how we lived before we were saved. If, if indeed, we are truly saved. So, this is certainly the opposite of what we're being told today by many. Sometimes now, the preacher says that since God died for you and used you must be somebody. But notice, Paul, has, Paul hasn't used that kind of language. He says, look, you, you've got elders, you've got the people, you're in God's field, you've got, it's not about you, it's about the Lord. And so when a preacher stands up, and, and we hear it in songs, we hear it in the, behind pulpits, God loves you so much, there must be something special about you. Well, no. You're a sinner, in rebellion to God, and God, because He's so great, He's so rich in mercy, He saved you in spite of yourself. What gives value to your life is that you now have been brought into a relationship with God. But don't use the gospel to make it act like you're important. Because then what happens, that instead of going through life saying, what a great God, what can I do for Him? We go through life saying, well, God must, I must really be something because God saved me. And so if every trial happens or something that you don't like happens, you're saying, well, why did God do this to me? Why can't I have that? Or look at me. Give me this. This is for me. Compliment me. And look out if I don't get my way. Because the whole mindset has been reversed. Instead of life being all about God, we say God is all about us. God just wants you to be happy. Well, I'll agree. God wants us to be happy. But you're only going to be happy, full of joy, satisfied, if you want to give all glory to God and make life all about God. And so in this passage, Paul equates the church and our function in the church with these three examples a farm, a building, and a temple. And I think this helps us get our priorities straight by remembering that we are servants in God's kingdom, working to serve Him, and uh, in that, find eternal reward. We notice in verse 5 that the word here is what is Apollos. What is Paul, not who. And the reason is because it's the uh, emphasis on what they are doing. They are servants, just like you are servants, and uh, so don't uh, elevate them beyond that. And so in this case, Paul came and planted the church through the gospel. Apollos was called to continue to eat and water that would produce fruit. And so it makes it clear that churches are not so-and-so's ministry. It's the Lord's ministry, the Lord's church, the Lord's body, right? Whenever I see somebody out there and they, they have they have a ministry behind their name, I know something is wrong. Because this is not about someone's ministry. It's about what the what Christ is doing in us. We are, the church is a group of people called out of the world to function as a local body, committed to the Lord and committed to each other. Elders come and elders go, but the church remains. This church is not my church. And it's not Jeff's church. He's been here longer than I have. But it's not his church. It's Christ's church. And when we get that out of whack, some weird things happen. I think it's going on in 1 Corinthians. And this is certainly spelled out more in 2 Corinthians. So in verse 8, as he continues, he moves on into how all this is seen by the Lord and how he is going to reward it. Again, he. He's encouraging now, having talked about the problem, he's, he's going to try to give us a fix to the, the problem, the divisions in the church. 
And the way that we live within the church community is of extreme importance. And one is not ready to meet the Lord if they are harming the church, causing division, rather than building up the church. And so one of the things you always want to be asking yourself is, what am I doing in the church? It's among God's people. Am I helping? Am I encouraging? As an elder, as a pastor, am I preaching faithfully? And so forth. Am I setting a good example in front of the others in the church? Because if you're not, you're, then we're going to see here, you're sending up, you might say, you're, you're producing fruit works that aren't going to mean anything. They're going to appear in the judgment of God. So here reminds us that we are not competitors in the church. We have a common goal. Elevating ourselves is not only not the way the church is built, but it isn't going to do any of us any good in this life of the next. It means something to us. I'm hoping that we are thinking, okay, how I'm living my life and how I get along with those in the church has something to do with eternity. And it matters. It matters if you just turn your back on the church and walk away and say, that's it, I've had enough. It's amazing. Knowing that there is a day of reckoning, wages, you know, mean that you are receiving just dues, a reward of somehow. It's amazing sometimes how little that plays in the way that we act and think towards each other. Right? And I hope I'm not speaking to us Necessarily, but it's something we all have to always be thinking about. Certainly, we can look, at, we can think of times where so-called Christians, and I think true Christians, do things that boggle the mind. That I think if you just would stop and consider who you are, consider what is going on, consider what the church is, would you have really said that? Would you have really done that? I wonder if sometimes it's because we know that we can't lose our salvation that we allow ourselves to mistreat each other, say things because we know that at the end of the day, ah, I gotta get it, I'm gonna get it to heaven. And, and that's a misuse of grace. Paul talks about that, you know, in Romans, for instance, 5 and 6 and so forth. But I hope that's not how we think. Does honoring Christ play a part in what we do? I hope that our Session of love for Christ affects profoundly affects the way we live. And, and think about this, you know, as I was studying, and what a great honor and joy to walk and to think as a child of God, to have been enlightened by the Spirit, as we talked about here already in the book, to be able to walk and understand what life's about, to understand that that no bad thing can harm you, that everything's going to work out for good. To understand why people do evil. To understand my way. To understand my end. To have light like that. What a joy it is walking with a Christian. And to know that it is because God has given us light through the word of God that I can understand these things. And how we should pity those who only immediate lust and uh, having any purpose in their meetings. They are walking literally as animals, finding fulfillment in nothing higher than their lust and greed and pride and violence and the fleeting pleasures. And I hope that that would give us some measure of uh, a burden for those outside of Christ who we think, when we see how wonderful it is to be a, a Christian and how miserable it must be not to be a Christian, but even worse than that, to know their end. I hope we rejoice every day in what Christ has done as he's in salvation has brought us back to And so in verse 9, he says that we live on God's earth. So he's the boss. We are fellow, we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. And then he changes over to God's building. Our lives are his because everything we have is his. As saints, again, that stock growing in the field is completely at the mercy of the farmer, right? I mean, that you know, it's a good illustration that says God gave me breath and gave me life. 
And when we are see when we see our lives as basically our own, all sorts of frustrations are inevitable. And it must be because if you're living for yourself, you know life just doesn't please itself. Most of it, unless you're just stupid wealthy or something, and even the wealthy have their own problems. We forget that, but. Things don't go the way I want them to go a lot of the time. And if I don't understand that this is God's doing, how can it not be frustrating? <clears throat> this church and our lives, our hearts, are the kingdom of God. Everything else in America is the kingdom of the world. Now I know there are those who think, well, you know, God's the king over everything. And that's certainly true. Obviously, He's sovereign. The earth is the Lord's and all that dwell therein. Yeah, we understand that. But the kingdom that's foretold in the Old Testament, the kingdom that is spoken of here, is the you got the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness, right? The kingdom is within us. The kingdom is the church, those who are redeemed. And everything else, else is under the, uh, and following after the prince of the power of the air, which is Satan. So we're concerned about what's going on in the kingdom of God. And here he moves to a new analogy from farming to building, which is in keeping with the New Testament idea of a church. As we saw in First Peter, we are living stones. We are the temple of now, not over in Jerusalem. The temple is the church. It's where God dwells. It's where sacrifices are performed, right? It's in the church. It's in our heart. We're living stones, Peter says, building up this temple. But we see here that we also are taking part in the building process ourselves. We go down to verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. So he's moved from a field where he's planted to now there's a foundation that he laid when he came to court. How did he lay that foundation? He preached Christ. He preached the gospel of Jesus Christ and, and, and work on the cross that was laying a foundation and he goes on to say I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it that is the elders at that time Apollos so let each one take care how he builds upon it verse 11 for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid which is Jesus Christ you've got the foundation is Christ now, if anyone builds on that foundation with gold, silver, precious stone, or wood, hay, straw, each one's work will be manifest. We'll get into that. So, those in the church are, the, the gospel has brought us together. That's the foundation. Everything we do is based upon the word that, that Paul preached, the word that the apostles gave us, the word of God. That's the foundation. And everything we do is to is building upon that foundation. So he started the church as he preached the gospel, then Apollos and others continued to build on it. Now there are those who, when they read this passage, they think that Paul has moved from the fleshly Christians, and now he's only speaking to the elders, those who built the church, those who are building the church. But I don't see that, because later on, he's going to continue uh, in verse 17, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy. You are that temple, and those were, the, were you there in plural, so let no one deceive himself. So I think he, he's speaking to the whole church, and certainly continuing to speak to those who are not producing pretty good work in the church. So this, I think we're going to find application here, not just for the elders, but for all of us. Keep that in mind. taking part in the building process ourselves. Remember, he's speaking directly to the members of those who have caused the vision. So, he says here that there is a right way and a wrong way to build on the foundation of Christ. In other words, there's a right way to live within the church community. And, and, and by church community, I mean our lives in general. And there's a wrong way. And it, we've already, we're, we're seeing in the Christian church the wrong way, what it's producing. And so our interest is, what's the 
gold, silver, precious stones, so things that endure. And I don't want to be guilty of the wood, hay, and straw because those are going to be burned up in some way. We'll get to that. And so it, it should be immensely important to us. Now in verse 11, we see that some might try to lay another foundation. But if you do that, you no longer have a church because you're building it on something other than the gospel and the words of the apostles, something other than the word. The foundation Paul lays in Christ gospel, and to build on anything else will just cause the church to become a religious organization. We've seen that throughout history over and over again. I think that what he's driving at here is that they are using the wrong materials to build on the church. What we see is that there is a connection of the foundation, which is Christ, and materials of the building. The foundation controls what is being built upon. And the point then is that the materials must work in relationship to the foundation. They must be worthy of the foundation. In other words, if Christ is the foundation, my works that please Him are works that honor Christ, the foundation. If I'm honoring myself, which is what a fleshly Christian does, then I'm not building something that's worthy of the foundation. It's all going to fall apart. So, in examining this passage, I want to, first of all, try to explain what Paul is not saying. Years ago, I think when I was probably a teenager, perhaps in college, because I heard this guy two or three times when evangelist came around, he preached on this text. And because, of course, the KJV has mansions in John uh, 14, uh, you know, that's, which is just, you know, it's just not a good translation. It, it, Christ says, I go to prepare a place for you. When I, I'm going to the cross for, for, to establish a place for you in heaven, right? He's not saying that I'm going, while I'm gone, I'm going to be building a mansion, right? We understand that. We've talked about that. But he didn't believe that. So he comes to this text, along with John, 17, John 14, and says, okay, what's going on here is that Christ is in heaven, when you get saved, Christ starts to build you a mansion. And he, what is he going to build it with? Well, it all depends on what you have to send up to him. So if you're doing good work, you're sending up good material. And if you're doing bad works, you know, then that's you're sending up material too. And then when he gets done, I guess I guess at the judgment or when you go to heaven or whatever, he's going to, you know, zap out fire on that mansion that he's built for you. And then the guy's serious. I mean, I'm not making this up. And whatever material will have to be wood, hay, and straw has to be burned up. And so you're going to end up with a holy nation. And not a good one. Right? So Christians who have done a really bad job of living the Christian life, they're not going to have much of a mansion to be pretty shoddy. With. So I guess you're going to be embarrassed. And if you've been a faithful Christian, your mansion will be mostly good. And I'm sorry, but that just, just is not what I don't think Paul is talking about. I want to reduce the Christian life to something so materialistic that it's all about what kind of house I'm going to live in in glory. This is our relationship to and work in the church, not, in, not houses. In We're not going to need houses in heaven to start with. Why would you need to dwell in a building in heaven? You're not, there's no danger, there's no night, there's no need of sleep. No, we're not going to be living in houses. We're going to be rejoicing before the throne of God among whatever else we're going to be doing. But it just really reduces heaven to something that I think is not helpful. Also, before we explain what it is saying, it's not talking about purgatory. As we would expect Catholics have jumped all over this to pr- try to prove that, well, what this is saying is that when you die, there's still going to be some bad work to do that have to be purged out, still some suffering to take place before you finally get into heaven. But that is not, that's just not found in scripture anywhere. We don't have time to deal with that right now. But we have for the possibility. 
But what is Paul saying? That why does he use this analogy? At the heart is the obvious fact that it is possible to live and work and serve in such a way that does not honor the foundation, that does not honor Christ. So just because we're Christians doesn't mean that we don't have a duty to honor the Lord in our lives, right? And so if we don't with material that the wood, hay, and straw, clearly those works don't have any lasting reward or lasting purpose. I think purpose would be a better way even to think about it. We, we want to do things in this life that have eternal meaning. And if we just live for self, when we die, that whatever purpose it had is, is, is gone. In a Here's an example of, I think, in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, where Paul says, So whether we are at home or away, talking about life or death, we make it our aim to please him. So that's what Paul says is a worthy work. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves but for him, who for their sake died and was raised. So there's the gold, silver, precious stone. As we talked about with the fleshly Christian who has made life all about himself, as we mature and we live and what we do is no longer for ourselves but Christ, now we're learning to live. He wants to be pleasing to the Lord and he wants to be directed by his love, which I think is a important part of a good work is one that's motivated by the love of Christ. And that gives us transcendent meaning. And he knows that Christ's work can never fail. And so he can be confident that he works. So when we act and speak and interact with each other, when we seek Christ to pursue him and we encourage others to do so as well, we are using materials that honor the foundation and that will survive and accomplish something for Christ and we'll find that God always fitly or aptly rewards us. That's one of the things that's that taught throughout Scripture is that God will always make everything right. That, that no matter what we do or have to give up for Christ, He will more than make up for it. But when we get in the, we get away from Christ and we start using the church and our lives for our own desires and then we divide and we get people to live for things other than Christ. The visions of the church always arise when you don't care about what other people, you don't care about Christ, you care about yourself. And so when we encourage the church to get focused on things other than preaching the gospel, we are no longer honoring the foundation, we're living fleshly. And so if I could expand on that a little bit, when we walk in and out of church as a suits us, when we attend the services as it suits us, when we don't build relationships with each other and make no attempt to be an encouragement, what we're saying that the that God's idea of a local church isn't all that wise and important, certainly not important to me. And I think that's unworthy material, because it's not healthy to church. And I often wonder about this when I take the time to prepare a sermon, hopefully for the glory of God and the edification of the saints. And then someone decides on any given Sunday, I just don't feel like going. And it's not that they're sick or they got something they have to do. They just, I've used the illustration with some people when, when they basically been very shoddy in their church attendance. You are thumbing your nose at the Lord. You're not coming your nose at me. I mean, there's a sense of what you're doing that. That's what I've prepared. But ultimately, you're saying the Lord, the Word of God is not that important. I've got other things more important. It's on some of my nose. When you aren't here, you don't only hurt yourself, you're hurting all the ones who you could encourage. If by no other reason for being in your seat, and encouraging us. I know it encourages me because I want to see people who love the Lord and who love the Word of God, who love the saints. I need to see your faithfulness and you need to see it in others as well. We're a body. And if the hand decides, you know what, I, I got a lot of stuff to 
do and occasionally go over there and see how the body's doing, see if I can help it. No. The body functions all each other all the time. And the same holds true at home, at work, and at play. When we do all for the glory of God, we're building our lives with enduring materials. Materials that's going to matter. When we live our lives ourselves, the building's going to collapse. It has to. But I think Paul makes it clear that you don't can't change the foundation. Verse 10 there says, that's the foundation is Christ. There's no change in that. And so when someone tries to build a church while denying the Trinity, for instance, they're building off the foundation. And what's going to happen? As Jesus said, if you build your house on the sand, what's going to happen? It's going to collapse. When you build on the rock, it's going to stand. I think probably Paul's just drawing from that parable and expanding on it. Make an application. So, we see this. When people start to deny the sufficiency of Scripture and the infallibility of Scripture, they deny the Trinity, they deny the divinity of Jesus, the church soon becomes something other than a church, a religious organization. And we've seen that even in American history. For example, it happened repeatedly in New England over 150 years ago when churches that were once evangelical uh, and, and Christ's foundation, they would get a Unitarian pastor because that was one of the early uh, errors in that day. And so here comes a pastor. They didn't really vet him very well. And he, turns out, doesn't believe in his Trinity. Doesn't understand the humanity of Jesus. He's denied the efficiency of Scripture. Well, I'm that kind of preaching is going to eventually affect the church, right? And we see these churches, and, and then you think about Harvard, these schools that were uh, sound initially, they get in a, uh, a someone, a, a president who doesn't understand the scripture, and the school immediately goes off into liberalism. But that's the history of, a, of the American church. There are churches all over the place, and, and you years, you can look and realize that the structure is so out of line with foundation that you might say it's not even on the foundation at all when the course it collapses. And so in verse 13, we kind of come to the meat of the message here, where it says, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. Now, the ESV is the only translation of all the ones that I use that capitalize the word day. It's mostly assumed that it's a reference to the judgment. To our judgment. And I, I, I'm not going to argue that too much. I'm going to make some application here a little bit later on that I think it could be more than that. So I'm not thrilled with capitalizing the word day in the Greek. Of course, there are no capitalizations. So it's a, it's a translation that adds a little commentary, you might say. But we'll, we'll talk about that in just a moment. For the day, whatever that is, we'll close it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If that work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And that's another difficult passage that some, I think, have kind of struggled with a little bit. So what's going on here? The passage is primarily speaking to saints, and while a true saint will in the end be saved, and so he will not be allowed to build on a false foundation, it is quite possible, it, it seems to be saying, that we can build our churches and our lives with materials that really have nothing to do with Christ, that don't honor the Lord. We're building something, and so we're all building something, whether you like it or not, you are building, you're, you're your life means something. And it means something to the Lord. And it means something in eternity. And that's why Paul later says, you're not your own. Be careful, he says. Because your life is not your own. You've been redeemed. You've been bought with a price. And then certainly we can see that here. We are trusting in something. We're living for something. We're being an example before others. The question is, is what you're doing something that's honoring Christ? And if it is, it will, it will, 
difference between the gold, silver, and precious stones. There's one sense in which I don't think there's any difference. Because uh, the issue is whether it stands up and honors the Lord or not. So it either burned up or not, right? On another level, we could say there is a difference. Uh, because gold is more precious than silver, which is more precious, I suppose, than precious stones. And wood, hay, straw, same idea. There's good works, and there's works that are okay, but some works that are better than others. But I think, think about the, the wood, hay, and straw becomes more evident. You know, in a farm, wood, hay, and straw are all necessary. They're all good. You have to have all of them. You, you need hay to feed the animals. You need a barn. The wood to house them. You need straw for bedding. And without any of those, it seems to go haywire. And out of the world, we know that there are people who do good things. There are lost men who are good fathers. There are lost mothers who are good mothers. But what's going on here? See, the problem is that at the end of the, at the, end of the day, it all gets burned up. So you can, and then you got prostitutes and drug dealers and, and human traffickers. So that could be the straw, you might say, if you want to make a distinction. And you can have the good work, who will say that's the wood. At the end of the day, what happens? Christ doesn't want any part of it. Because it's done apart from Christ and sin, right? And so, there's that. But what we want to focus on is the fact of, not the difference between the materials, but whether it's something that's going to withstand the Lord's look, stare, judgment, or not, right? And so giving ourselves over to simple things might accomplish something. Even as Christians can be good fathers, can, can do good work, but if you don't have the right motivation, you're not motivated by love to the Lord, it's not a work that's going to endure in the sons of what didn't have the right motivation. So just like many churches have given themselves over to social programs but have forgotten about the importance of the word of God and the souls of men, they start to produce works that are good horizontally but fail before the Lord. When we depart from the emphasis on the word of God, we quickly start using the wood, hay, and straw. We begin, we're building something that's not worthy of the foundation. And I don't want us to, to be a building out in the yard. I want us to be, this church to be established on Christ. And so Paul is saying that the Corinthian church has started setting up Useless works because they've forgotten who they are while they were saved. Now, the standard way, I, I, not the only way, I, there are others who would at least agree with me in some principles of interpretation I'm going to take here. But the standard interpretation is that, in verse 13, is that you're, you're doing it, you're leading a good life, and that when you go to heaven, you know, if you've done good works, you'll have a great reward because they work for God. And uh, so that's kind of the standard word that, that all this has in, is going to take place at the judgment. And so the day there should be capitalized in, some, in a lot of people's minds talking about the judgment when we stand before Christ. But I think there's perhaps another, and maybe even in some instances, a more important application. As we read down, like say verse 15, it says, If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And so people say, well, there are going to be some Christians, and you see how this is going to play into the whole fleshly part of Christian. There are some Christians who just basically all they do is send up you know, what they have. And so when they stand before the Lord, all that's going to be burned up. But they're going to squeak into heaven because after all, they're believers. And so they're saved. They're just not going to have any more. Well, again, that fits into the carnal Christian theory, but I don't think that's what Paul is getting at there. And my point is that perhaps, and we're getting towards the end here. I'm sorry, I might go a little bit longer today, but I want to get this out. My point is that perhaps we need to think of the judgment as something that's coming into our lives now. Not later, but that God extends this judgment now upon us to test our work in this life. Let me just kind of 
quickly go through why I think this. James 1, 2, quickly. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith, and that testing is an idea of judgment, of your faith produces steadfastness. It produces wood, or gold, silver, precious stone. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God promised those who love him. So instead of just saying, that, well, something's going to happen, perhaps Paul's saying that that is something that the Lord is doing now to produce good work in us and to test what we're doing. And if we're building our lives on Christ, then when trials come, it proves that it's gold, silver, precious stone. If we're building our life with worthless material, it's revealing our weakness. It's burning it up. So while they are a tool to purify us, these trials are, they also become the wood, hay, and straw in our thinking, and what we're trusting in, and what our love is. You know, nothing exposes a house, a house of material that is for and I've worked on roof. I've torn the roofs off of mobile homes. And sometimes it's so shoddy, you can rip it off with your hands. You can rip the shingles right off with your hands because they're just stapled and the staple hardly goes in there. And no wonder when the judgment comes, the tornado comes, they explode. The judgment of Christ right now in our lives might expose the fact that we're using far too much dishonoring things in our lives instead of living by faith and love for Christ. So, we look at the judgment of Christ as something that's purifying us. And I'm glad he starts the process now, because I think it'll make it better in the day of judgment that he has produced in me something that is lasting. Now, the commentators vary, as I said, but, but there are some who understand that, that don't believe it's referring necessarily to the judgment. There are some who think the judgment is 70 AD, the destruction of the temple. So, it is, there's a lot of weird ideas out there. But what I the, the reason I think this is important is because I don't think the idea is that a saint they send up mostly bad works and somehow squeeze into heaven anyway. That he'll he'll come through the fire with just his soul, but he's going to get into glory. By the Lord weeding out the bad motivations and works that purifying us, I believe he's helping us produce God honoring works. And so let me give you two verses here as we close, that I think show the same idea. Here's one with Peter, chapter 4, First Peter. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, let him glorify God in that name. For it, for it is a time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what shall be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And so you see a very similar idea. Judgment has begun in the church as God weeds that sin out of us and produces in us something lasting that's just the Christian life. That's Christianity 101. And he quotes from Proverbs 11:31 when he says, "If the righteous are scarcely saved, I think people that that English word scarcely they they apply that to First Corinthians three. They say, well, see, it's possible for a Christian to just barely get into heaven, but that word barely means difficulty. And so what we could say, if the righteous with difficulty with, with God bringing difficulty into their life to produce in them something worthy if they're saved like that, what's going to happen to the ungodly in the lost? Right? And so they quote from, uh, did I not, did you, did you don't have to do it up there? There should be one more thing. There we go. If, this is what he quotes from, if the righteous is repaid on earth, how much more the wicked is the sinner. Now, he paraphrased a little bit, right? But notice, if the righteous are repaid on earth, if, uh, if, if the Lord is working in producing in them, uh, in this life, 
what's going to be the end of the wicked and the sinner. So I think there's a case to be made that Paul has mainly in view not waiting judgment, although it's certainly true in that day, but even in this life, this is begun. We remember in 1 Corinthians 11, in that very church, there were those who were sick and dying because they were eating the Lord's table unworthily. So God had already begun to judgment the way of purifying the church. So I think those are some things um, to keep in mind. And so, as I close, let me just close with a couple of paragraphs. Each will receive a reward granted according to our, the way we labor. It, um, it, it, so I don't deny that. This has eternal implications, but I think it's something that we can apply now. When we serve in a sloppy, haphazard fashion, we are defiling the church. You know, I fr- frequently hear people ask, how do we motivate people in, to serve in the church? And it, I guess it could be answered in two ways. We can teach them that they will stand before God and give an account of their ministry, which is true. And so we can kind of motivate them by reward or by fear, by duty. And there's nothing wrong with that as far as it goes. And so there will be reward or shame. And so it's not, I don't think that's sort of the best way. And that's true. But can we not point out the glorious work that we are in and the opportunity? we have to build the local church and let the gospel be the motivation can we not say look let's be holy because of what it's doing in people's lives and how it's glorifying God I mean if you love the Lord is that not enough motivation I don't want to just be faithful so I don't get shamed at the the judgment I don't want to be faithful just because I'm I'm worried about having a bench with holes I want to be thankful to the Lord and I want to be thankful for the grace given towards me and be motivated by that. And I think that is the goal of these things that Paul is speaking about. That's the very best thing to contribute to the Lord. And that will not be burned up in judgment. That will have eternal implications, eternal reward. So I hope that we have been able to open up that passage a little bit. Uh, any questions or comments?